the images that I create are a little bit like personal Rorschach tests. So I create these images and I don't think about what they're about. I don't say, well, I want to suggest such and such. I just don't. I think about nothing. I think about... This photography podcast is brought to you by Frames, quarterly printed photography magazine. Here is your today's host, W. Scott Olsen, with another fascinating conversation. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another podcast from Frames Magazine. My name is Scott Olson, and today we are going deep into the world of art, of compositing, of image painting, uh, for uh, lack of a better term. We're going into a kind of photography that is tremendously evocative and does things that the photorealist school simply can't do, both in terms of presenting an image and evoking emotions from us. In other words, we're talking with Fran Foreman. You know Fran's work from the Frames Facebook page, if nothing else. If you are familiar with the Boston Museum of Fine Arts, the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum, the Museum of Fine Arts in Houston, the Grace Museum, and a thousand other places, then you have been introduced to Fran's work. Fran, born in Baltimore, she went to Brandeis University where she studied art and sociology, then went off uh, and got a master's in social work was a therapist working with heroin addicts, and then somehow, for some reason, went and got an MFA from Boston University in design, a field which she describes as as melding psychology and art. Uh, She's an affiliated scholar with the Women's Studies Research Center at Brandeis and one of the country's, if, if not the world's, foremost practitioners of photo painting. Fran, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Nice to be here. Thank you so much, Scott. I'm delighted to meet you. Nice to meet you as well. Uh, Fran, I'm really intrigued by the trajectory of your career. You started off with art and sociology. Tell, I mean, you know, before we get to your images, before we get to the work that that's really got everybody so excited, tell me about those early college days. How did art and sociology wind up being in the same basket for you? <laughs> it does seem weird, doesn't it? No. Well, it actually started, <laughs> started before college. I, I was a kid with very few talents, except that I loved to draw, and I could draw pretty well. So I always had a pencil. I was always getting in trouble with my teachers because I would be doodling in textbooks, or I would submit an assignment in school, which would be covered with little drawings. <laughs> and so people just assumed I would be an artist. Mm-hmm. When I was much younger, actually, I think even probably as a preteen, my parents had subscriptions to Life magazine, and I used to copy the photographs that I saw. That's how I really got started. So I'd just sit and copy these with pencil and practice shading and try to emulate what the photographs were doing. Mm Then for my 13th birthday, I asked my parents for a subscription to Look magazine because I thought those pictures were even better. I didn't know at the time that both of the magazines were employing the very best mid-century documentary photographers and then fine art photographers as well. So I would say my earliest education was in looking at those black and white photographs of Look and Light magazine. When I got to college, I wanted to double major in both art. 
wasn't sure, couldn't decide between sociology and anthropology, but I was interested in the humanities about, I was interested in what made people make decisions. But I was also taking art classes, but at the time, in the 60s, the art that was being taught in school was primarily, or at least encouraged, was primarily abstract expressionism. And my images, my paintings and drawings were completely realistic. They were narratives, they were pictures of people, they were profiles, and I wasn't really encouraged to continue my drawing. So I moved away from art and just concentrated on in the humanities, which was fine because it gave me a worldview, which I carry to this day, why people make certain decisions, the intersection of the personal and the political. Of course, we're very aware of that these days. I needed a job after college, (laughs) and I worked for a while in an epidemiological study of child abuse. It was actually the first study of child abuse. It It was operated by a professor at Brandeis who understood that laws to protect children wouldn't exist until the number of abuse cases was quantified. So that's what this, uh, this epidemiological study throughout America was supposed to do. And I worked for a couple years on that study, just doing a little bit of research and mostly data collection, and then applied to graduate school and social work. There weren't many options for people interested in either art or sociology at the time, except for either teaching nursing, or women, I should say, either teaching art or uh, teaching or social work. There were very few. This was the time in which when you looked for a job in the newspaper, the classified ads were relegated to either male or female. I mean, it it was ridiculous. So I got into social work school. It was uh, Simmons College School of Social Work, which specified eco-psychology, and it was a really interesting introduction to the way the mind works and how behavior is so often influenced by the relationship of the mind and the environment. So my job after I got my master's was at Cambridge Hospital working in the heroin treatment program. So that takes me to my interest in art. During that period of time, I was living in a commune. This was, remember, the late 60s, mm-hmm. early 70s, yep. working as a social, work, social worker, but continuing to draw on my own because I'd never stopped drawing and doodling. And my co-communards were very interested in what I was drawing and very encouraging And at the same time, I was beginning to realize that I wasn't really able to help my clients who came into my office. The addicts were entertaining. They were pretty bright. They were quite manipulative as a group. And I enjoyed them. But I realized I was more interested in designing my office and making drawings to hang on the wall than I was in helping them. I started to think of my clients really as friends rather than people that I could help. And I felt a little bit, I felt dishonest that I wasn't able to help them. After two years of working, I applied to and then got into a post-master's program to become an administrator of a substance abuse program. And it was very prestigious. And 
I wasn't sure that's what I wanted to do. So initially I accepted it, then took a brief vacation, just two weeks to visit Mexico at the end of one summer, came back from Mexico and called the school and said, I'm really not interested in this program. I want to devote myself to my art and I don't know where it's going to go. And I don't know if anything will come of it, but that's what I decided to do. And the school said, well, you can always do art in the evening. You, you can continue to work. Uh, you can be an administrator. You can work with patients and clients and do your own art. But I knew then that that's not what I wanted to do. For me, it was pretty clear that art had to be full-time. Either uh, I had to be fully committed to it or not at all. So I turned down the fellowship and then dedicated myself to a year of pulling together a portfolio. Now, was, was this all just drawing at the time or were you taking images with, with a camera? No, no, I hadn't picked up a camera. Okay. I was just drawing. I was drawing and painting. And I can't say that they were very good. So I took a lot of different classes in art and I took adult education classes and things like uh, carving stone, painting, drawing, jewelry making, silversmithing. I just took lots of different classes and one by one eliminated each <laughs> class and just kept coming back to my drawing. That's really what I love to do. And after about a semester of that, I decided I would dedicate myself to travel at least for a half a year. My plan was to try to circumnavigate the earth on my own. It was really naive, but I packed up all my stuff. I uh, found a temporary foster home for my cat and I took off. And during those nine months or so, my plan was to go all the way around the world. I never made it further than Israel. But while I was in Israel, I was working on a kibbutz and I ended up in the kibbutz almost by accident, another ridiculous shaggy dog story of how I ended up there. But while I was working on the kibbutz, one day I was painting the interior walls of a bomb shelter. And I came up for air from below and above me was a man who introduced himself. He was American. He spoke English. And he was teaching at Bezalel, which was the major art school in Israel at the time. It was in Jerusalem. And I said, what kind of art do you teach? And he said, graphic design. And I said, what is that? And he explained to me that graphic designers create the posters that I had been collecting for my walls, book covers, record album covers. And I understood that it was a convergence of commerce and fine art. And it was at that moment that I realized that was exactly what I'd been looking for. I'd never even heard of graphic design because previously had been referred to as commercial art. And as a child of the 60s, anything with the word commercial was anathema. Right. But once I understood what graphic design was, I completely changed my mind and changed my geography as well. I finished up in Israel, came back to the United States, took classes because I knew then I needed to get a portfolio together and I needed to find a school to get a master's in graphic design. Turns out that there was one school in Boston at that time that was offering an MFA in graphic design and that was Boston University, but I needed a portfolio. 
So I got a temporary job at MIT in which I traded my services as a housekeeper for a unit called the Visible Language Workshop, which was the precursor to the Media Lab oh, at MIT. Very cool. And, and I was sweeping up at night. I was cleaning up. I was learning to use their offset presses. And they had a dark room. And one of the young MIT students taught me how to use the dark room, how to make pictures. And that's when I discovered the magic of photography. So I spent the year basically in the dark room and used that portfolio to get into the MFA program. And once I was in the MFA program at Boston University, I pretty much stayed in the dark room. My tuition was paid in exchange for me working the stat cameras, which don't exist anymore, at least as far as I know, and continuing to monitor the dark room. So that's how I got into it. And my earliest inspiration in photography, in addition to what I had seen from my parents' newspapers, were photographers who I still love, like Dwayne Michaels. I also loved Ralph Eugene Meatyard. I loved the photographers who could tell stories. Jerry Yulesman was another favorite. And I realized that that's exactly what I wanted to do. The, the courage, actually, at every step there is remarkable. There's the self-reliance, the ability to say, you know, this is what I really want to follow as new doors open. How did you wind up then becoming an art director at AOL Time Warner? I mean, your, your work, you know, it, it had to be much more than simply competent. Your work had to be extraordinary. Well, um, it didn't happen immediately. There was an interim of about 15, 20 years <laughs> between getting my MFA and going to work for AOL Time Warner. After I got my graphic design MFA, I worked as a kind of traditional graphic designer, Ruby Lift, that kind of stuff for, for a period of time. Worked with my husband for a while, we ended up doing a lot of signage design, which for me really meant designing typographic elements, which I loved. I loved typography. It was really interesting. I hated the engineering part of signage, but I loved the design of it. I did that for quite a long time. And then I had my daughters. And when my younger daughter turned five, I realized I had spent too much time with my kids early and I really needed to get back into the world of design. And that was around 1989. And when I tried to look for full-time work, I also realized that I had missed the whole computer revolution. By 1989, uh, computers were taking over the world of design and I was still working in an analog way. So I had to quickly get up to speed, which meant taking classes. I started taking classes first using an old software program, I think it was called Pixel Paint, in which I learned to use the mouse to draw pictures, which was really fun because I love to draw. So I was drawing pictures with a mouse, but that wasn't getting me work in graphic design. I'm a big believer in, in education. So I took a class at Harvard uh, at the Extension School in 1992, and the, the class was called Mixed Media, which I thought, I have no idea what that is, but it sounds like fun. And one of the mixed media software 
applications that was taught was Photoshop. There was also a sound editing program, and we learned Flash, which at the time was used for animation, which I also loved using. But it was Photoshop that I completely fell in love with because for me, it involved drawing as well as manipulating photographs, which I had tried to do earlier, but now I could do it on the computer. And it was one of those moments in which your brain just kind of reconfigures and you know exactly where you want to go. I've been lucky enough to have that happen to me a few times in my lifetime. And this was one of those days. So I just devoted myself to learning as much as possible. This was when Photoshop had no layers. There was another program at the time, I think it was called Painter, that had two layers. So I could work in Painter, save those two layers and bring them into Photoshop and then manipulate Photoshop. And by going back and forth, it was pretty clunky, but I could start really making collages and and having fun with it. And I ended up loving it so much and doing so well in the class that they actually, I actually taught it at Harvard over the next couple of years. Uh, Well, let me ask you a couple of questions here because, you know, looking at life and look, you know, when, when you were much younger and drawing those, I mean, that is black and white, but it's mostly photorealist. You know, there's some, you know, advertising, you know, fine art stuff in there. But you say on, on your website, you know, that you create new and imagined staged scenes that integrate and juxtapose realism and illusion, villains and saints, longing with disconnection. I mean, is, is this the psych and social work sort of coming into developing your aesthetic for art or, or what you're doing? It would not have been in life or look back in the 60s. Uh, what you're doing yeah. is, 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 is light years just aesthetically away from that. So how, how did you develop this this voice that you've got now? That's a, a really good question. And if I spent years in analysis, I might be able to figure out the answer. But well, we, we've really only got know. three hours, friend. <laughs> I don't really know. But I do know that my background in sociology and in psychology plays a part into it that the dream life is, I have very vivid dreams and the dream life definitely plays its part. I think from studying or copying the photographs from Look and Life magazine, I what I learned was not so much fantasy and illusion, but I learned good composition. And I also learned, I think, the importance of light and shadow. And I also learned that many of the photographs that I saw had emotional uh, content because these were photographs that were illustrating a story. And the story was often a major story, an emotional story. I remember one photograph I saw, and I think I was about 14. And I mean, it was very sad. It was a photograph of of a couple that had been waiting for their child to appear on an airplane, but the airplane had crashed. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know why the magazine chose to to photograph these people. It was just so tragic, but I was just amazed at the emotional content of it. So I think that might be part of it. And also remember that the photographers whose work I loved were really out dealing in illusion and fantasy, especially Dwayne Michaels. Well, actually all of them and, and Meat Yard in particular. 
those appealed to me. When I tried to make my own photographs starting in the 70s, the photographs I made were always suggestive of life outside of the frame. So I have a lot of figures that are moving out of the frame. I felt that the rectangle, uh, the 35 millimeter rectangle was arbitrary and I couldn't get the whole story in it. So I copied Michael's and did a lot of series. And I also often had my figures half in and half out of the rectangle. So I think that was part of it too. Just a sense of, I wanted movement. I wanted to tell a story and I couldn't tell the story within that arbitrary frame. You know, I'm going back to the stuff you said on your website here when you talk about your image making is heavily indebted to geometry, uh, to patterns. So, I mean, clearly the frame as as a psychological border is something you want to break uh, left and right. That's true. But also when I was a designer, when we had our own business and we were doing signage, we were also very, my husband with whom I was working at the time is an architect. So we were very involved in geometric patterns and spaces and typography is also geometric. And I I certainly wasn't aware of this early in my art making career, but I am now that I pay a lot of attention to the lines, the shapes, the ge- the geometry in uh, in the way that I create an image, and the way the light falls too. So yeah, there are patterns. There's a symmetry to the patterning that I try to replicate in my art. Let's take just a quick break. We hope very much that you are enjoying today's episode. The very fact that you are listening to this podcast suggests that photography means a lot to you. And if that's the case, you might want to have a look at Frames, quarterly printed photography magazine. We truly believe that excellent photography belongs on paper. Visit readframes.com to find out more about our publication. And now, back to today's conversation. You you said something there that, that caught my ear again because it's come up a few times. And when I've been interviewing other um, photographers, a lot of them you know, have a, a 2D drawing background as a way to understand light. And, and both you say yourself and people that have written about your work have all said that light is a major character uh, in your work. Even, I mean, you even talk about, you know, your images can have a, a noir feeling, they can have sort of a dark feeling, but there's always light as a ray of hope somewhere in your work. How do you understand light? And I don't mean exposure value. How do you understand light as a content element in your composites? Well, I'm certainly not the first person who started using light as an element. I mean, look at Caravaggio. I think I would say that he really, uh, before anyone else in a major way, started to understand. And then the Northern Europeans grabbed hold of that and started using it too. It's a way, it's a way to uh, magnify a story and also to call attention. But it's not just light. It's also shadow. Where does the shadow fall? The light will bring the viewer into a particular space, but the shadow is just as much of the story as the light is. Yeah, I do try to put in many of my image some source of light. I don't like it to be terribly mysterious, but also that light offers what I say is a measure of hope, possibly, because my my images tend to be 
a little bit dark and but they're they're not depressing no no but metaphorically they could be dark they they tell a story and the shadows really aim to uh further that but the light gives the sense of of peace in some way serenity i don't know if that's answering your question absolutely And, and i know you touched upon this a little bit uh earlier but these days you know in 2022 you know what is it about the montage, the composite, the the the, the multi-layered um, content in, in your images that attracts you? Is it the ability to have you know all the storytelling elements up in the air at the same time, or what? I make montages for several, many, many reasons. First of all, it gives me the flexibility to create exactly what I want. I don't know that I could construct a scene in real life with real characters and real objects that would say exactly what I want. Maybe if I had a big budget like Gregory Goodson, <laughs> I could do it. And if any of the listeners wants to supply me with they, such they, a budget. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If we're looking for patrons, I'm in front of the line. Sorry, but keep going. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I'll be right behind okay. you. Um, so that's number one. Number two, I take photographs pretty much everywhere I go. And I am able to figure out a way to put those photographs together, although it's not always apparent to me when I shoot them where they're going to end up or what I'm going to do with them. Mm-hmm. How, how many, how many me, elements are, you know, on average, and maybe that you can't answer, but how many separate elements are in an average composition of yours? It's really hard to answer because it could be as few as five. It could be as many as 15. Sometimes they'll even create a composite for a human. So if, for example, the image that I just worked on yesterday, I didn't particularly like uh, what this woman was wearing, but I liked the position of her head. So I just moved pieces around, which is also helpful because if I don't have a model release, which sometimes I don't because if I'm shooting someone and forget to get a model release, if I disguise them enough, then I think it's fair play. I hope so. I hope I can get away with it, but I do. I composite people. But mostly I put many, many different elements and I'm pretty careful about which elements I choose to use. They're not random. But when when you're out shooting, do you see the world in terms of elements or do you see the world in, in, in terms of compositions? No, I see the world as, as elements. Uh, this might be interesting. I'm particularly interested in interior spaces. I can tell, yeah. So, and you'll notice that most of my images are interior. And I'm not 100% sure why that is, but I think it might be because the interior of the space is metaphoric for the interior of someone's mind. I've just never really developed a knack for photographing landscapes. I would like to, but it's just not where my energies gravitate. So I'm always interested, always looking for interesting architectural spaces. And I also love to look at the way the light falls in a space, in an interior space. So I look for rooms, interiors of buildings with what I like to call good bones, a good structure, <laughs> interesting light that I might be able to play with and magnify in my image making. You know, all of your interiors, I'm scanning through them uh, here, you know, as, as we're talking, 
are, are beautiful, but you've also always got an exit. You've got a mirror or you've got a window or you've got a door. There is some way out of every interior space that, that I'm scanning through here. Is that something that, that you're doing on purpose or is that just something that that's evolved as you're putting stuff together? Yeah, you're very intuitive. Good for you. No, I, <laughs> I think it was unconscious initially. And then once I noticed it, I, I realized the purpose of it. And in the same way that I might use a source of light, it's an escape hatch. It's a way, but also I'm looking at how a mirror can, how an image can be reflected in a mirror. Sometimes you don't see what's there. Sometimes you look at yourself and you see somebody else. Sometimes I use a mirror to show someone behind the scene. So you don't see the person who's looking in the mirror. You assume that that person is standing way behind you, the viewer, but the reflection is in the mirror. So I play with that a fair amount, especially with my more current. I have to say my, uh, I'm sorry to say my website is not completely up to date, but <laughs> Instagram and frames is a better way to look at more uh, contemporary work. Man, it, those of us with websites, if they were ever up to date, I, I think the world would come to an end. Um, yes. Fran, I, I want to ask you about some of your individual images here. And everybody, this is an image, at least the first one I want to ask about, uh, is one that Fran posted on June 13th to the frames uh, Facebook page. And Fran, this is the one of a young woman with a tattoo on her arm sitting at a table just inside a door. There's a lamp on the wall behind her. Do you know which image I'm talking about? Yeah, I know which one. Yeah. Okay. I, and I, I want you to walk me through the image, if you would, twice. First, okay. its idea. You know, what what is this image about for you? But then just tell, tell me the process. You know, how many layers? How'd you put them together? How, you, know, how, you know, what is the image and how did you make it are two separate questions. So, well, let me start with the process because okay. that's actually easier. So I'll start that way. So I was at uh, on Cape Cod a couple months ago and wandering down the street, and I saw a, a building in construction. I love the old Cape houses from the 17th, 18th century. They're just charming. And when I talk about good bones and architecture, that's a lot of what I refer to. So I, I saw someone working in the working at the house, actually in the exterior. And I said, I don't know where I got this nerve, but I asked this workman, is there any way I could get into the house? And he said, sure, it's open. So he showed me the secret way of getting into the house. And it was in complete and total disrepair. It, I've never seen such a horrible thing. But I really loved the bones. So I started wandering around the house. I actually went back a second time and taking photographs of the house and the walls. So then I had this house and really wanted to work with it. And what was interesting to me about that particular image was the, the light on the wall and the door. So we have light coming through the door and we have a lamp with a lampshade in which no light is coming in the middle of the wall. And there was just something about the symmetry of that wall that I really loved. And then it was a question of what do I want to do with it? So uh, when I was teaching out in Santa Fe a couple months ago, we had a model come into our class and I photographed her. And at one point she was sitting at a table. So I photographed her at the table and I just loved the position. I had 
asked her to do certain gestures with her hands. So that particular shot, she looks as if she's holding something with one of her hands and she's sitting at a table. She probably thought she would be holding a wine glass, but I didn't feel that that was appropriate. So then I started playing around with that particular image of the young woman whose name is Madeline in various different places within that room. And at one point I had spent a couple days working on that image, but the woman was over to the right side. So we had the door to the left, the lamp in the middle and the woman on the right side. And the colors were very bold. And I actually posted it at one point. And then when I posted it, I found that it felt too uh, symmetrical in a way. And I just wasn't content with it. So I continued working. And because she was in a separate layer, I moved her around and then placed her where she is now. And so you see on the left side, rather than a figure, which you expect to see because of the sense of symmetry, there's just a block of light, a big square bit of light. And I really loved the relationship between the door, the woman, and the block of light. And then that lampshade in the middle. The other part of the image that I added was the exterior, which was just a shot I had taken and blurred of some trees when I was sitting in a car driving down the highway. So just a sense of the vague sense of something on the exterior. So let me ask a couple of, now the block of light to the right. Um, is that original to what you actually saw? I mean, light coming in from a window or someplace, or is that added? No, it wasn't. There was a little bit of it because there was a door to the right side. So there was a little bit of light coming in from the right, but I magnified it. So when I said I like to work with the structure and the bones of an interior space, that is an example of that because I liked what was there in a very minimal way. And it was just a question of emphasizing the parts, the architecture of the image so there, there was a very minimal rectangle of light coming from, from the uh, other part of the house, but I just accentuated. So I'll play with what's there quite often. And the color tones, the red floor mimicking the, the red-ish you know, colors towards the top? No, that was all manipulated after the fact. Oh, very cool. So what's this image about? <laughs> that, that's why I left this to the end. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not sure what it's about. The images that I create are a little bit like personal Rorschach test. So I create these images and I don't think about what they're about. I don't say, well, I want to suggest such and such. I just don't. I think about nothing. I think about what should go together in some sort of intuitive and conscious way, but I don't think about the specific meaning. When I say it's like a Rorschach test, it's only after the fact, after the image is completed, that I begin to understand what it's about. And that's the same for this image. So if you look very closely, she's holding a a dandelion, but the dandelion after the flower petals have disappeared. So it's just the feathery part of the dandelion. And I wanted to create a relationship between her holding the dandelion and the exterior. It's very subtle. It's very subtle. And she has a rather wistful expression on her face. But it's a, it's a 
question of wonderment, but also a question of, of solitary serenity, of isolation. There's nothing else in the room, just her and the lampshade. And I wanted to suggest more of a feeling which I think that image does accomplish. Well, I mean, it, you, you have said often in the writing on your website that, you know, solitude and, and is one of your uh, major issues. But you've got, you know, one of your, one of your um, books, The Rest Between Two Notes. What a beautiful title and, and what a provocative idea. And, and, and you know, the minute I read that, I thought, okay, that's the key to all of these, these wonderful images, this notion um, of the moment between moments, the rest between two notes, as you say. Where, tell me where this title came from and explain it for me. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So, so, many, so when I was asked to publish a book by Unicorn a couple years ago, I looked over time, this was a fairly long process, but over time in looking at my images that I wanted to include, because I don't work in series necessarily, I don't think, I really don't work in, in a series. I don't plan ahead of time. Well, I want to do a series about X, Y, and Z. I just make images, each one as a story in itself, almost like the way a painter works. They don't work in series. They just paint what they feel like painting, and that's what I do. But at any rate, when I was asked to put this book together, in reviewing my work over the previous five years or so, I saw that there was a consistency and not only a sense of solitary self-reflection in individuals. I also saw a disconnection, but I also saw that there was a stillness, a moment between moment. And it was almost as if each image was the still frame between actions. Is that figure going? Is the figure going to one side, going to the other? Is the figure waiting the figure is obviously reflecting on something. So in thinking about the title, after I pulled together the images that I wanted to use and thinking about the title, I came across this poem by Rilke. And that line just jumped out immediately, the rest between two notes. Because for me, it suggests not only the moment of stillness, but it suggests music. It suggests what's going to happen before, what's going to happen afterwards. It suggests the moment in one's life between life and death. It suggests the moments between illusion and reality before history and the present. It suggests the moment between connection and disconnection. It's that in-between moment, the in-betweenness that really is what my images are all about. So I couldn't think of a more perfect title. And the entire first stanza of the poem actually is on the first page of that book. The way the book is organized is into five different chapters. And each chapter is a different kind of in-between state, as I suggested, between illusion and reality, between history and contemporary times between coming and going, between connection and disconnection and so forth. So they all tie into the sense of that moment between moments. Oh, man. This is, for for my sensibility, really moving uh, and and compelling work. A a question about use of color and sharpness. Um, A lot of people, you know, describe your work as painting, uh, photo painting. And it re- I mean, it, this is not the super tack sharp 
electron scanning microscope kind of kind of work. This this is not. If I say it's soft, I don't mean blurry or out of focus or anything. But but th- there there is a attitude to the use of color in your work. Is this just what you intuit is right, or have, have you got an idea here that you're chasing? No, it's it's the way that I make images. Um, first of all. Because many of these are similar to dreamscapes, they're not tech sharp. A dream wouldn't necessarily be, at least my dreams wouldn't be. The painterly quality comes from the way that I use my tools, my tablet. And also, I just feel that it suggests a story a little bit more. I'm not the kind of photographer, I'm not so technically sophisticated that I even care if my images that I shoot are tech sharp. I don't care. It doesn't matter to me. It's really about the relationship of objects, the relationship of the figures to the background, and the other elements, the light, the color, the symmetry, the shadows, and so forth. So to me, that's much more important than the photorealism. I'm not trying to replicate a scene from reality. I'm not that kind of a photographer or a painter. No, and, and you even on your website and everybody, it's franforman.com. I forgot to mention that earlier. You don't call yourself a photographer. You call yourself a visual artist. Um, That's right. Is, is, is that an right. important distinction? For me, it is because I couldn't teach you the proper way to use a camera because I don't care. It's not something <laughs> that's of interest to me. And I'm not technically oriented. I really think of myself as an artist. For me, the photographs are just what I happen to use. It's almost like the computer is and the camera are just tools that I use. And for me, the mouse or the tablet are my paintbrushes. So I don't believe that the tools that an artist use are relevant. I don't care whether a photograph is made with uh, historic processes or with cold wax or hot wax or done on the computer or shot directly in the camera. For me, it's all about the output. It's all about the image. It's the story that it tells. And I firmly believe that when I, uh, when I jury, when I jury certain competitions, I'm never paying attention to what the technology is or what processes were used. I think it's totally irrelevant. It's like, do you say to a painter, well, your painter is no good because you used acrylic rather than oil painting? I mean, it's just not, it's not important. Oh, I am a hundred percent with you there. You said a minute ago that you don't think in terms of series and yet I'm looking at your website and you've got 11 series listed here. Are, are these all ideas that have, you know, that have come later in the process where you've said, oh, I've got 10 images that seem to be about the same thing. Yes. Or, or, or yeah. I mean, have you, have you ever set out to say, I'm going to do, you know, like your Midnight Sun series, I'm going to do a series of images that all approach the same idea? No, no, you're right the first time okay. around. It's only after the fact that I see that, oh, yeah, these look, <laughs> these are very similar. But that's only for the purpose of creating my website. I'm sorry oh, okay. to say. <laughs> I mean, you, you must be an incredibly patient person to have this tremendous catalog of elements and then to sit down at the computer and start playing, start starting to sort of move things around. How many hours does, does an, you know, on average, does an individual image that I would see on your website or on the Frames Facebook page, how many hours are behind those? 
Well, uh, first of all, I don't think patience has anything to do with it. I love the process. And if I didn't have this process, this is a gift to, to love it as much as I do, because I can't imagine what else I would rather do, to be honest. So it's hard to answer your question because I am always manipulating images. So for example, this weekend, I did a couple of photo shoots and came back here and started going through them, eliminating some, silhouetting them, playing with them. I don't know where they're going to end up, but I was doing a lot of the more boring kind of preparatory work with those images. So when I'm finally ready, it could take a long time because I move things around so much. I do a lot of experimentation. I might take one of those silhouetted images that I recently did and try it one place, try it another, eliminate it altogether. So it, I can't really answer that question, mm -hmm. but I would say the process of finishing an image could take I would say days or weeks even by the time I'm satisfied or bored with it. <laughs> One or the other. <laughs> or I throw it away, which also happens quite oh, often. Oh, man. Fran, this this has been magnificent. I mean, we we've, we say over and over that photographers really are storytellers, and you are one of the best examples of that. And this work, this work with compositing, with with visual painting, whatever you want to call it, really does push photography and graphic design and art uh, into a, an area that I find personally really um, enriching. So thank you very much. It's been, it's been a lovely conversation. Thank you so much, Scott, and thank you, Frames. <laughs> Talk to you later. Bye bye. Frames, because excellent photography belongs on paper. Visit us at www.readframes.com.